Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, we turn to you this morning and uh, we pray that, Lord, you would feed us from your word this morning. That, Lord, wherever we are in our own individual walks with you, that we would be able to hear your spirit speaking to us through your word. And that, Father, uh, we would be encouraged and helped forward in that walk. Lord, I pray that any, any words that uh, are not from you would fall to the ground. But anything that does come from you would would remain and bear fruit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're carrying on our study through the book of Joshua and we are working through Joshua chapter 5. I've got a lot to say, so uh, whether I'll be able to finish the whole chapter or not, I don't know. But uh, I'll keep a close watch on the time. It's just before 11 o'clock, so uh, if I'm starting to go a bit long, I'll cut it short. But uh, let's just read through the chapter first of all so that uh, we are familiar with the text. And uh, I wonder whether I could have a volunteer to read Joshua chapter 5 this morning, please. Would somebody like to read the chapter to us? Um, Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is Gilgal till this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land and leavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, 
what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Praise the Lord. Thanks a lot, David. So the Lord had dried up the River Jordan. Uh, the children of Israel had passed from the east bank to the west bank on dry ground and the river had resumed its flow. And there uh, Israel had erected two sets of memorial stones, one in the riverbed of the Jordan itself and the other in Gilgal. And uh, Gilgal had become Joshua's base of operations. From here he would both launch and oversee the conquest of the land of Canaan. And as we look at the chapter before us, uh, I've split the chapter into four sections. The first section is verse 1 where we see the hearts of the Canaanites are being prepared. Then uh, the second section is verses 2 to 9, where we see the hearts of the Israelites are being prepared. And then verses 10 to 12, we see the Passover is observed. And then verses 13 to 15, where the Lord meets Joshua in person. So I just want to park ourselves on at verse one to start off with and just spend some time looking at what is going on here. I'll reread it to you. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So here we have two people groups being mentioned, uh, the Amorites and the Canaanites. Now, who were the Amorites and the Canaanites? Well, we know from Genesis chapter 10, where it gives us the, the table of nations and the descendants of Noah, that the Amorites and the Canaanites were descendants of Ham. Uh, Canaan was a direct son of Ham and the Amorites were descendants from Canaan. And you might recall Ham was a wicked man who sinned sexually against his parents. Now, we went into some detail as to what that sexual sin was uh, when we studied uh, Genesis chapter uh, uh, 10, but uh, we won't go into it now. If you want to look into it some more detail, the talk's on the website. But the point is, Canaan, who was the son of Ham, uh, and his descendants were seemed to be in the same mould of character as their father Ham. They were wicked And they were prone towards sexual sin. Now, in the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, in Leviticus 18, we have a legal document outlying forbidden sexual practices to the children of Israel. And I just want to read to you verses one to four from Leviticus 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. It is following this introduction uh, where Moses says explicitly, you're not to follow the practices of the Canaanites 
that he lists a series of uh, forbidden sexual practices. And the inference is quite clear. These were the sexual practices of the Canaanites and the Amorites, and they were an abomination toward God. And the sexual depravity of the Canaanites was closely linked to their religious practices. They worshipped both Baal and Asherah. And uh, Baal would prove to be a particular stumbling block to the children of Israel. But it was the worship of Asherah that was uh, very much linked with sexual practices. Asherah was honoured and worshipped with various sexual rites, both heterosexual and homosexual in orientation. And the thing is, Israel was a nation of shepherds. They kept flocks. But when they come into Canaan, we see that the Canaanites were a nation of farmers and the Israelites would have to change. They would still look after flocks, but they would have to become farmers. And the issue was the Canaanites worshipped their gods to ensure the crop would yield a good harvest. As the Israelites adopted a new life of farming, would their God ensure a good harvest? Or should they honour Baal as well as Yahweh just to be safe? Well, the Lord made it abundantly clear. You shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. Now, why do I go into this detail about the Canaanites and the Amorites? Well, <clears throat> let's uh, go to Deuteronomy and uh, chapter 7. Deuteronomy and chapter 7. And there I'm just going to read to you verses 1 to 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. God had commanded that the inhabitants of the land were to be dispossessed, to be driven out and to be destroyed. And the reason being is that they were a wicked people given over to these sexual idolatrous practices. And we start to see that happening from our following chapter, chapter six um, in Joshua. So I wanted to sort of lay a foundation and talk about this because I knew it would have to be a subject that we cover. Joshua 6, 21 says, and the, then they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the, the edge of the sword. They were absolutely merciless in killing the people in Jericho. Now, the accusation has been made that Joshua is a book of genocide. It advocates, people say it advocates mass extermination of an entire people group. And this makes both the Bible and the God of the Bible abhorrent to many people. And the th question is, how do we answer such accusations? 
Well, the first thing you need to know is that these were wicked people. They were vile. They were not innocent victims. And we see that in their sexual practices, but there were many more other aspects of their lives where they were wicked and sinful. The second thing you need to know is that God is righteous and holy. He will judge all those who are wicked. It's just a question of when they will come to that place of judgment. And what we're going to see is that Canaan was ripe for judgment. There is a biblical principle uh, called grace before judgment, i.e. God will not judge a person or a nation uh, without first warning them of their sin and then giving them a period of time to repent, a period of grace before judgment. And as we shall see, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Amorites a period of grace that lasted over 400 years. It's, as if, it's not as if they weren't warned and it's not as if they didn't know that judgment was coming. And it's not as if God had not given them op- ample opportunity to repent. Now to see this, I'd like us to now go to Genesis chapter 15, please. If you can turn to Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 13 to 16. This is where uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision and he made a covenant with him that guaranteed him descendants too numerous to count and a land in which he was sojourning to be a promised possession for him. So Genesis chapter 15 and we read from uh, from verse 13. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve its people and be afflicted by them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord gave Abraham a timeline for his promises to Abraham to be fulfilled, a timeline when uh, he would come in to possess the land. And that timeline included him being afflicted for for, for, him and his descendants being afflicted for 400 years uh, by strangers. That would include, of course, their uh, incarceration, their slavery to Egypt. He also said that after that you would come out uh, of uh, that place of slavery with great possessions and he would God would judge that nation who had held you in slavery. And that's what we saw happening. God judged the nation of Egypt. Uh, Ian went into quite a lot of detail about this in the early part of his talks in uh, Exodus. And then in the fourth generation, they'll return to possess the land in which Abraham was uh, uh, sojourning in at the time. And it says there, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What God is saying there is the Amorites have a 400 year lease on the land and notice had been issued at that point in Abraham's life. So they had 400 years to repent and turn to the God of Abraham. Now, the question is, did they use that time to repent and turn to God? Well, the answer to that is no. They used that time to fill the land with iniquity. And they had plenty of warnings of judgment. In that time, there were the repeated witnesses to the Canaanites and the Amorites from Abraham, from Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob's sons. 
We know from Joshua 2 uh, and the witness of Rahab that they had witnessed the destruction of Og and Sion, Amorite kings on the West Bank. And that was a warning that judgment was coming. They knew of the deliverance of uh, the Israelites from Egypt, from the Israelites from Egypt through the Red Sea. And that had already filled their heart full of fear of coming judgment. And yet they didn't repent. But it did prompt Rahab to shout to the spies to sue for peace and run to the God of Israel for salvation. But they didn't cause the majority of the people to do so. And then we see here in Joshua chapter five, verse one, they had seen what the hand of the Lord had done, drying the waters of Jordan, bringing Israel across from the east bank to the west bank. And their hearts were full of fear. There was a fresh witness before them that was days old of the supremacy of God. Why not send messengers? Why not sue for peace? Why not turn to the God of Israel? Well, they did not turn to God because their hearts, though filled with fear, were also filled with sin and wickedness. And they would rather die than bow the knee to Yahweh. And how sad it is that this was the case and how often so often this is the way of the world that we encounter as well. Evidence upon evidence is offered to the reality of the God of the Bible to people that we speak to. Time and again, grace, mercy and love is extended by God to a person, to an individual. But they would rather die and go out to a lost eternity than bow the knee to Jesus. So why do I go into this detail about the Canaanites and the Amorites? Why and how do we answer the accusation? Joshua is a book of genocide. They were a wicked people. They were not innocent victims. God is righteous and holy. He will judge all those who are wicked. Canaan was ripe for judgment. They were given over 400 years to repent. They were given multiple witnesses and opportunities to turn to God, but they chose not to. They chose judgment. It's not a book of genocide. It's a book where people chose to be judged. And that should be a warning to us all that we need to choose life, not death. We need to choose, need to choose Jesus Christ and not our sin. Our sin will only bring judgment, but Jesus Christ will bring eternal life. Now, I heard something very interesting earlier this week, uh, that the average person needs to hear the gospel seven times before they respond. I don't know whether that's true or not. I went online and double checked it and I found another source saying the average person needs to hear the gospel three times uh, before they'll respond. But I think it's important for us to recognise that we don't keep, we don't stop witnessing. We don't give up preaching the gospel to people. God did not give up with Canaan until their time was up and we don't give up witnessing to other people until their time is up. I've always been strongly impressed by Psalm 90, which was written by Moses. And in Psalm 90, verse 10, we read, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labour and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. The time limit for Canaan's salvation was 400 years. But there's a time limit on every person's life and the average man lives for 70 years or so. And so there are 70 years of grace before judgment will fall. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. 
Behold, now is the day of salvation. We should never hesitate when it comes to turn to the Lord, but we should always respond the moment he called, reaches out to us. And it's important to remember that not all the Canaanites were destroyed. Some were simply dispossessed of their land and driven out as God had commanded. Some were converted to serve the true and living God. Rahab, of course, being the most obvious example in our case study in here, but she wouldn't have been the only person. And some became servants of Israel, uh, namely the Gibeonites. And there are some interesting things to learn about the Gibeonites, which we'll cover in due course when we get to that part of the story. And just as not all the Germans were killed in World War II to secure victory in Europe, so not all Canaanites were killed by Joshua to secure victory in Canaan. So, but what we see here in verse 1 of Joshua 5 is that the heart of uh the Canaanites and the Amorites were filled with fear. Their, their heart melted. There was no spirit in them that God had prepared them for judgment. Uh, but let's move on. And uh, I'm going to reread uh, a little bit of Josh, uh, the, the next couple of verses. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, when God brought Israel across the Jordan, he performed two works. He prepared the heart of Israel for conquest and victory, and he prepared the heart of Canaan for defeat. He put faith into the heart of Israel, and he put fear into the heart of Canaan. And uh, this inspires a couple of thoughts in my mind. When it comes to evangelism, the Lord needs to prepare the heart of those doing the evangelism but the Lord needs to prepare the heart of those on the receipt of evangelism as well. And this work of preparation is done through prayer. We need to pray not only for ourselves when we go to witness, but we need to pray for those to whom we are witnessing. But the other thought that crosses my mind is that God was working on the hearts of all the people concerned. Throughout scripture, the lesson is the same over and over again. The Lord is concerned with the heart. He doesn't want your wallet. He's not looking for your attendance. He's not looking for your lip service. He wants your heart. It might mean that he it might mean he uses the wallet to get to your heart. But the ultimate goal is he wants your heart. And here here we see in this next section that God is looking to reach the heart of Israel. It's interesting. God reveals his strategies to his people one step at a time. Men like five year, 10 year plans and visions. But God wants your vision to be simple, as it says in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus. God will reveal his plan for your life one step at a time. That way you have to look to him and rely on him. Yeah, because if you knew what was coming next, you might drop out before the going gets tough. I wonder how many men would have crossed the Jordan if they knew circumcision was on the other side. And not just any old circumcision, one with flint knives. Uh, no scalpel. No anaesthetic that I can see sounds like a very painful operation. And I'm just crossing my legs now thinking about it. But we read, read in Joshua 4 verse 14. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they feared him as they had feared Moses for all the days of his life. The crossing of the Jordan magnified Joshua in people's minds. And so they feared him and they recognised he was God's man. 
and so they followed what he said. The Lord gave the command at this point because Joshua needed to be magnified in the sight of Israel first before they would respond with obedience. And so we read there. Um, so Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins. Now, why does the Lord command Joshua to circumcise the sons of Israel? Well, I can see three reasons why uh, this circumcision has to occur. The first is it restores their covenant relationship with God. The second is it tests their faith. And the third is it removes their reproach. Let's just look at circumcision for a second. If we can go back again to Genesis and this time to Genesis 17. We see there the introduction of circumcision as a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and by association the Israelites. Genesis 17 verses 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he will who is born in your house or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be your, uh, in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin on a man, was the sign of a covenant God made to Abraham and to his descendants. And if you were to be a partaker in the covenant, you needed to be circumcised. And if you were uncircumcised, you were excluded. You were cut off from Israel and from the covenant. It was essential for there to be a covenantal relationship for you to be circumcised. Now, it is not just a physical act, an external act on the flesh. There is a spiritual meaning, a spiritual purpose behind circumcision. And we can see that it was expressed also to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Really making you jump through the scripture this morning. Deuteronomy 10. And now I'm just going to read to you from verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. You are above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a, bri a bribe. We see this the physical act of removing of human flesh was 
actually to reflect what should happen, an internal act of the removal of sin and stubbornness from the human heart. To circumcise the heart is to become fully yielded to God and his will. To put away defiance and rebellion. To love the Lord God. To be wholly devoted to the Lord God. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The result of circumcision in the heart is you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And that is exactly the same work that God wants to do in our lives today. He wants to circumcise our hearts that we will love him wholly and completely. We'll be truly devoted to him. And unfortunately, during the wilderness wanderings of Israel, this uh, act of circumcision had fallen into neglect. We read there in verse five. Um, for all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. And why? Well, the reason was given in verse six, the following verse, where it says, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. This lack of external circumcision really revealed a lack of internal circumcision within the people. The nation had wandered not only in the wilderness, but also in their devotion to God. Now a new generation had emerged from the wilderness. It was time to recommit themselves towards God. It was a time for rededication. It was time to restore the covenantal relationship with God. And so we read there in verse four. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. The second reason or the purpose, the need to circumcise the Israelites was to test their faith. Israel were camped in enemy territory, two miles from Jericho. To disable every fighting man would be an act of absolute military suicide. But we know from Isaiah 55 verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And it was a question of, are you going to go God's way or are you going to go your way? Are you going to trust what you think is best or are you going to trust what God says is best. Is your heart yielded to the Lord? Is your heart wholly devoted to the Lord? Are you trusting in him, even though it doesn't necessarily make much sense? This circumcision of a whole nation brings to mind an account that happened in Genesis 34, uh, the rape of Dinah. Jacob and his family were camped near Shechem. They shouldn't have been there, but that's another story. And Dinah the daughter of Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And the prince of Shechem, whose name happened to also be Shechem, raped Dinah. Following that, Hamor, the father of Shechem, spoke with Jacob and he sought an intermarriage between his son, Shechem, and Dinah. But also he looked for an intermarriage between his people of Shechem and the people of Jacob, Israel. And Jacob foolishly agreed which would have led to idolatry and the pollution of the messianic line. The sons of Jacob then deceived Hamor and said that for intermarriage to occur, every male within Shechem needed to be circumcised. And Hamor readily agreed, and the men of Shechem proceeded to circumcise themselves. Then what followed was a bloodbath. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, killed every single man in Shechem 
with the sword. Because of circumcision, the men were completely disabled and the entire dwelling, uh, entire population of Shechem were able to be killed by just two men. You might remember when we reenacted this in Sunday school and uh, instead of swords, I gave the children pipe insulation and I made everybody else, the, the uh, inhabitants of Shechem, and I just let the children loose to come and hit you on the head with that pipe insulation. I've still got images in my mind of Olga cowering under the blows. Um, this act at Gilgal was absolute madness in the natural. If two men can kill an entire city who had been recently circumcised, how much more could, an, could the entire city of Jericho kill the company of Israel who had been recently circumcised? This was a test of faith. Would God protect and preserve his people if they were obedient. It was a test of faith in God and his strategy over their wisdom and intellect. And it was a test of faith in God's leader and leadership over their submission. It's interesting, God had tested Israel after the Red Sea crossing at Mirabah in Exodus 17, but Israel had failed that test. God now tests Israel again after the Jordan River crossing and Israel passes that test. You know, in Joshua 5, we saw that five words of faith were spoken into the lives of Israel. In Joshua 4, uh, faith was recorded in the memorial stones. And now in Joshua 5, that faith was tested to prove its integrity. Faith always needs to be tested to prove its integrity. And whenever God brings a victory of faith in your life, invariably it will be followed by a test of that faith. If you think... After Abraham triumphed in faith by entering the promised land, he was then tested in faith by facing a famine. After Elijah triumphed in faith over the Baal worshippers, he was tested in faith by a death threat from Jezebel. After Jesus triumphed in faith at his baptism, he was tested in faith by being drawn into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And after we have experienced a triumph in faith in our walk, we too need to be prepared to face a test. Andrew Bonar, the Scottish minister, said, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the victory. So I said that wrong. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. The danger is that once we're in a place of victory, we drop our guard. I so often work hard to be in a right relationship with God in preparation for a Sunday morning meeting. But then after it's opening, then it's over and think, well, I've got victory. I relax and think, okay, that's over. I've got a victory. It's invariably going to be later on in the day that my faith is tested and where I'll stumble. Don't drop your guard. And the third reason and the need for circumcision was uh, to remove their approach. We, there we see that in Joshua 5 verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of this of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means to roll. And as the Lord rolled away the foreskin, so the Lord rolled away the reproach of Egypt. And Israel had a reproach. They were taunted, scorned and shamed. 
And this reproach may well have been Israel's association with slavery. It might well have been to do with Israel's idolatry with the golden calf. It might well have been Israel's lack of faith to enter the promised land some 38 years beforehand. Whatever the source of reproach, it would be cut off like the four skins. And this act would be a rededication. This was a new generation entering Canaan, full of faith, wholly devoted. In short, we see Israel here in the place of revival. And as Israel's presence on the west bank of the Jordan uh, took the Canaanite and the Amorites back 400 years to when they were first warned of coming judgment. So God reminded them, uh, God takes Israel back 400 years to the covenant he made with Abraham when he was 99 years old, commanding Israel to get their hearts right. But what of us? Where are our hearts before God today? Do we need to be circumcised? Well, men, listen up. I've got a verse that we can stand on, a promise of God. It says in Colossians 2 verse 11, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We don't need to be physically circumcised today. Hallelujah. Uh, that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Circumcision was an external act by God's covenant people Israel, but it was always meant to reflect an internal spiritual act in the heart. The spiritual act is still very much applicable and relevant today, although we no longer need to engage in the physical act. The Lord wants to cut away the flesh of our hearts, our stubbornness and selfishness, to put off the old man and to put on the new man, to walk by faith and not by sight. Interestingly, physical circumcision is a one-time act, but I would consider spiritual circumcision, spiritual circumcision an ongoing act. There are areas of our lives the Lord still wants to cut away. There is a reproach in our lives from our shameful acts in the flesh the Lord still wants to roll away. And he does this through test and trial, like Israel were tested. And, it, and it's painful, and it leaves a scar and a wound, like it did with the sons of Israel. But it prepares your heart for the battle and for the victory that lies ahead. Israel were now battle ready. The Battle of Jericho would not be a show of strength. The Battle of Jericho would be a show of faith. Reading on, after this circumcision, we read in verse 10. So the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Now the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. At Gilgal, memorial stones had been erected to serve as a remembrance for future generations of Israelites of God's miracle at the Jordan. But there was another memorial uh, for Israel, established 40 years earlier, the Passover feast, and this served as a remembrance of God's deliverance from Egypt. 
So here now on the 14th of Nisan, Israel enjoys the Passover in the promised land for the first time under the shadow of Jericho, on the plains of Jericho, the scripture says. Israel were to never forget that they were set free by the blood of the Lamb. And uh, on this day, they looked both to their past deliverance, but also to their future inheritance. And the church is exactly the same. We are to never forget that we are set free by the blood of the Lamb. And we look both to the past deliverance at the cross of Calvary, but also to our future inheritance at Jesus Christ's return. This is summed up in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26. We all know the verse. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We're both to be looking backwards and forwards in our faith. And it was a day after the Passover that Israel ate of the produce of the promised land for the very first time. And the day after that, the manna ceased to fall. For 40 days, Israel had been sustained by the supernatural food of manna. God had given them daily bread from heaven. Quite wonderful. And we know from John chapter 6 that the bread of heaven was really a picture of Jesus Christ. So really, Israel had fed on the Lord Jesus Christ every day for 40 years. And we too are called to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ day after day. We are to abide in Christ. We are to let the word of God dwell in us richly. We are to read his word, to meditate upon his word, for it to become uh, flesh to us. And we are to seek his face in prayer. Now, I can't help but feel as if Israel were quite a bit pleased at the change in diet. If I'd eaten the same thing day after day, year after year for 40 years, I'd be welcome of a different meal. I mean, how many different ways is there to cook manna, I wonder? You can have fried manna, boiled manna, manna stew, poached manna, roast manna, toasted manna, manna burgers, manna waffles, stir fry manna. But it does start to get a bit old after a while. How good it must have been to eat the produce of the land. And remember, the book of Joshua is about moving forward in your faith and the relationship with God, coming to the fullness of what God has for you. And let me tell you, whatever you have been feeding on up to this point in your walk, the further you press into God's purposes for your life, the sweeter the food comes, the more fulfilling the meal that lies ahead. The word of God just becomes more and more enriching and flavoursome to you compared to what it has ever been in the past. You know, it's interesting. Passover happens at the time of the barley harvest. And when the Canaanites saw Israel approaching, they fled for refuge to the fortified city of Jericho and they left their unharvested crops untended for Israel to gather. The fields were white unto harvest, if you like. And so there they were eating their enemy's food on the plains of Jericho right before them. And it brings to mind Psalm 23 verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so in closing, let's just read verses 13 to 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, uh, 
Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. The Lord had promised Joshua in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. And so it was, as the Lord had been with Moses at the crossing of the Red Sea, so the Lord was with Joshua at the crossing of the Jordan River. And as the Lord had caused the fear of Moses to fall on all Israel, so the Lord caused the fear of Joshua to fall on all Israel. This promise would now be solidified by Joshua encountering the Lord just as Moses encountered the Lord. And just as Moses removed his sandals, Joshua too would have to remove his sandals for he was standing on holy ground. Now it would seem that as Israel was recovering from circumcision and Passover, uh, Joshua wandered by himself to examine Jericho. He'd had the report of the two spies, but still he wanted to see it for himself. Remember, Joshua was the general of the armies of Israel. He knew the Lord had promised victory, but he didn't yet have a battle strategy. How was he going to conquer this impenetrable fortress? Battering rams? A siege? Were there any weaknesses that he could exploit? And as this general stands surveying the city before him, scratching his head, he sees another soldier before him. And what's more, he has a sword which is drawn, which we know is an offensive stance. Joshua obviously doesn't recognise this person and he needs to know, are you friend or foe? And the answer he receives is immediately unhelpful. No, doesn't really get him any further forward. And who hasn't asked the Lord something and not received the answer they expected or wanted? You know, the Lord doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. But the Lord always tells us what we need to hear. And then this soldier says, as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. You know, it's a lonely place being in leadership, knowing the decisions you make affect many other people. The burden can weigh heavy on the shoulders. And it's as if the Lord was saying, I told you I would be with you, Joshua. You are not alone in this battle. You have the entire Lord's army on your side and oh how that must have made Joshua's heart swell with joy you know I'm a plumber a jobbing plumber and I have guys who come and work for me uh, depending upon what the job is and I work very closely with another guy called Alex and every now and again he says Matt can you come and do a couple of days work for me and at that point my heart leaps with joy because I can put down the responsibility, I can put down the planning and the administration and I can just turn up and say, morning Alex, what do you want me to do? Yes boss, no boss, three bags, full boss. And this is exactly what's happening here. Joshua has been in charge of the armies of Israel, but now he remembers he is number two. The Lord is number one. And all he has to say is yes boss. Now, Joshua now knows he has the Lord's army on his side, but I found myself asking the question, how many angels are there in the Lord's army? Well, Hebrews 12 verse 22 tells us that there are myriads of angels. I don't know what a myriad is, but I turn to Revelation 5 and it says there that there are 
10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. Now, 10,000 by 10,000 is 100 million. And then there's a thousand thousands on top of that. So that's a lot of angels. Um, however, I don't know whether they're all enlisted in the Lord's army or not. So I went to Matthew 26, verse 53. And there Jesus said, Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now, uh, Jesus seemed to have at his direct command at least 12 legions of angels. And a legion was 6,000 men in a Roman army. So that makes 72,000 angels at Jesus' immediate command. It's not 100 million plus, but it's not to be sniffed at. Uh, but now think carefully. If you go back to the time of the Passover and the plague of the uh, slaying of the firstborn, how many angels did it take to wipe out all the firstborn children of Egypt? Just one. And Joshua had at least 72,000 angels on his side. How much more damage could they do? You see, it would not be Joshua and Israel climbing up the walls of Jericho. It would be God's angels pulling them down. No wonder Joshua fell on his face and worshipped this man. If this soldier had been an angel or indeed the archangel of Michael, he would have rejected this worship. The fact that he receives and accepts this worship shows us clearly he is none other than the Lord, the visible image of the invisible God, the second person of the Trinity. You see, Joshua was in a place of need and God met him in that place of need. And God meets us exactly where we are at. I've said it before, but Abraham was a sojourner and wanderer in the land. And how did God meet him? As a sojourner and wanderer in the land at Mamre, along with the two angels. Jacob had spent his entire life fighting and wrestling with people. His father Isaac, his brother Esau, his father-in-law Laban. And how did God meet him? As a wrestler and fought with him all night. Joshua was a soldier, soldier a commanding officer. And how did God meet him? As a soldier, a commanding officer. You see, the Lord meets us where we are and he met there he meets us, meets our need. And so what does the Lord ask of us in return? It says there right in that last verse, take off, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. The Lord requires of us to respond to him, to show him reverence, to stand in the Lord's strength and to walk in holiness. And we read there, and Joshua did so. His heart was circumcised. He was sold out to Jesus. What about us? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that which we've seen in Joshua chapter 5 this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be those who yield to your work of circumcision in our hearts. Please cut away the flesh. Please cut away that selfishness and make us wholly devoted to you that we can press forward to the victory and the rewards and the inheritance that you have in store for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.